We're your health and safety angels, Daisy Silcock and Lindsay Mason. Health and safety, busting the barriers. Welcome back. We're on to episode seven. Of course, I'm here with my sidekick, Daisy. Hi, Daisy. How are you? Feeling, feeling energized and ready for this episode. What about you? I'm excited for this episode because we're getting into the the nitty gritty today of of the Health and Safety at Work Act. So the big boy. The big boy. <laughs> oh, I do I do speak before I think. I know that. But it's part of my charm. Do you know I had to work that out then? I had to in my head I had to process that speak before I think. Do I do I speak first or do I think first? I don't know. Um I I definitely speak first. You're more a thinker, I think. Oh, I don't know. I think stuff can just roll out without much thought. And then I want to shove it back in again once I've said it. (laughs) (laughs) Although I do think now I'm older that I'm not so worried about saying the wrong thing. Oh, yeah. Because I used used to care so much. Now now I I just, I am me. And if I say something wrong, I say it wrong. Like, who's perfect? Yeah, but that's the thing. They think they are, but they're not. Oh, so we're back with our wonderful listeners, ready to break down some barriers. Um, so we're on to the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974. And you've got a bit of a fact for us, haven't you, Daisy, about how uh, special next year is? Yeah. So technically, on the 31st of July next year, so 2024, it is exactly 50 years since the Health and Safety at Work Act was originally published. We're going to have a party. We, we have no idea what this party is going to look like. But we are going to have a... And it might just be me and you. <laughs> yes. woo um, We actually have quite a good time, don't we? So that's fine. Yes. We'll just get like some streamers and stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that's pretty huge, really. Yeah. Well, it, the interesting thing is how far health and safety has come. Do you know what would be really, what would be really cool? W- would it be really cool? Well, like our cool. <laughs> you know okay um it'd be really cool if we could get someone on here who perhaps has been in industry since before it even came out blimey don't say it like that yeah but then really if if you're gonna be you'd have to be 70 now wouldn't you that's, that's all right yeah true oh my god my mum just turned 70 a few days seriously ago. don't so, knock yeah, it i'm oh, sorry that's when we're 70 bad. we'll be going Gosh, I'm so young. I don't know why you why do you put on that weird voice when you talk about oh, I'm an old person. <laughs> old people do not speak like that. I know? I do it in my training courses. If I'm talking about someone in construction, um, I put on like my male construction voice. Do you go like or, Oi, you're right, yeah, love? Yeah. <laughs> I've got a voice really for a number bad. of different industries, I know. <laughs> we are not stereotypical at all on this podcast. No. <laughs> Especially when I think we're we're the complete opposite to what people think in terms of health and safety and delivering health and safety training. Yes, I turned up I, I turned up on a site today, and um, they said, "Oh, are you the food safety auditor?" I went, "No, but I could be if you want." Um, so yeah, they kind of didn't expect me to be the health and safety trainer. I don't know what we were expecting, but I get it all the time, all the time, especially when you turn up on site. Uh, and you're there to deliver training, you're not expecting number one a female, mm. and uh, and obviously I'm not shy. Do you get that a lot when you do the face fit testing? All the time. 
because I don't know. I mean, there probably is, but I, I don't think I've seen any other female. I, I'm not that it's a male gender, but there's a few. I could just imagine that because I mean, as much as it's it's um, you know not an issue either way, there are still a bias in terms of career genders, you know, sort of gender specific for different types of industry and stuff. And I guess construction is no different to that, but it's still, it's getting better, of course, but I would imagine it's still fairly sort of male dominated in that respect. Massively. I mean, I'd no idea on the percentage, but massively male dominated. The other thing I think is there's a certain generation that view um, what a professional person is We've had this discussion before, haven't we, about tattoos, about hair mm. dye, about piercings. And um, I'd I'd much rather be me and be competent than have someone with a suit that is just flying by the seat of their pants. Is that the yeah, same? Yeah. When I, when I started, um, I was very much aware of having to fit a mould. And I, I remember wearing sort of suits and... And, and you know looking a certain way and acting a certain way and one thing or another and then I think as I've got older that's just gone out the window and the the irony is I genuinely believe from sort of reviewing my own performance that I think I actually work a lot better just being my authentic self. I think that's really what we should we can learn as a society that um people function better when they're themselves when they feel comfortable when they're happy when they're relaxed and um, but I do also get that there are views that people hold because it's learned behaviour. You know, people were told that tattoos were for criminals. That that was the way it was. So now it's very difficult to turn that off. And I do understand. The irony, the irony, isn't it now with something like tattoos is they're so expensive. Uh, I, I mean, because the, again, there's that sort of image of them being, you know, a certain type of person or whatever would have them. And yet they're so expensive now. I mean, it's like what four hundred, five hundred pounds for a day. Of yeah, it must getting be. tattooed. I've not had. I can't do more than two hours. It makes me feel sick. I mean, you'd you'd you'd, you'd have to be like a, a director of an organisation to afford that. Um, but no, but I've had it. I've had it about my hair colour and that my hair colour doesn't look corporate enough. And I remember saying to this one particular company, "Well, what are your corporate colours then?" And they said blue. And I said, "Well, I'll dye my hair blue then." Because I just think, well, if you're going to say professionalism is based on the colour of someone's hair, then you could say the same about the clothes they're wearing or, you know, things that literally in the grand scheme of things make no difference whatsoever. Professionalism for me is integrity, it's honesty, it's, you know, it's uh, your, your competencies. And I just don't think the other stuff really makes an awful lot of difference. Apart from the fact that you've got to dress appropriately for your location, so I wouldn't wear flip-flops or sandals to go to site. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've got to wear certain outfits. Apart from that side of things, I I don't think it makes any difference. But I'm also very aware that people have been told a message for so long. It's really hard to undo that. And I think we have to we've got to recognise that as we move forward as well. That you know you can't just expect someone just to be told, oh, we do things differently now. Oh, okay, I'll change my whole mindset of what I've known for forty, fifty, sixty years. Yeah, it's it's challenging those biases yeah. and stuff, isn't it? Really. How have we got onto that subject? Yes, I sorry. Oh, we just love a chat. That's why. That's no, why we're here. Exactly. Love a talk and a, and a natter. So let's um, let's do Hazwa. Yay! So <laughs> I have got the uh, our favourite website open, hsc.gov.uk, and legislation.gov.uk. So we've got some 
factual information to share. Um, but we're also just going to chat about it as well and, and explain it in our own gorgeous way um, so that people can try and understand it a bit more. Hmm. Yeah. So do you want to, so where, where are we going to start? We're going to go in uh, legislation. Are we, are we starting at um, section two of the Health and Safety at Work Act? Yeah, so Well, okay, so I've gone to hsc.gov.uk and I just searched HSWA, Health Safety Work Act, that's short, mm-hmm. 74, and it's brought me up the homepage as such for Health and Safety at Work Act, etc. Act, Health and Safety at Work, etc. Act, 1974. And then I've got the basic information from the HSE. And then there's a link which takes you to a separate website legislation.gov.uk which actually gives you the full law with all the complicated words and everything so yeah and that's what I would say if you are wanting to absolutely verify you know what the law says to the letter of the law that's where you need to go is legislation.gov.uk right but there's no answer book is there there's no there's no factual book that says 100% this is exactly what you do to comply. It's open to interpretation. Uh, As we said, we've got some guidance documents that say what you really should be doing uh, and some suggestions what you could be doing to comply. But ultimately, the courts are the ones that decide. Yeah, they're the ones that say you did or you didn't do that thing. So uh, I I like this base that the homepage for the Health and Safety at Work Act. It says the Health and Safety at Work Act is the primary piece of legislation. So the main, uh, the big body of the law, the jellyfish body, covering occupational health and safety in Great Britain. So basically workplace health and safety in Great Britain. And then it gives you some different terminology that we call it. Uh, But over an overview is it sets out the general duties, which employers have towards employees and members of the public employees have to themselves and to each other which i think is a really important part that we will be going through and certain self-employed have towards themselves and others then we've got a link so we click on the link and it takes us to this legislation website and you've got a list of a number of duties and they are all numbered would you say it's a bit like going to the library and everything's got its own code no it doesn't really well with the act each of the different numbers are what they call sections um and some of those sections are then subcategory down and down and down um so they all have headings so there's like a contents page with the headings so depending on what you're looking for you can go to the appropriate heading which is the appropriate section and this piece of legislation starts off with section one, which is called plurin. Plur- I can't say that word. If you've got a lisp, it's a really hard word to say. Do you have a lisp? You don't have a lisp. You know, when I was young, somebody said, uh, they said, uh, you never get anywhere in life. You sound too much like Toya Wilcox. I have no idea who that is. Right. Seriously. Is it movie star? She's a singer. Okay. People will be listening to this going, she does have a list. Mine's not as pronounced as Toy Wilcox, but preliminary. Yeah, preliminary. So, so section one is the preliminary, which basically just gives context to what is basically going to be written in the legislation itself. 
So effectively, it's just kind of almost saying, well, this is what we're going to be talking about. And then all the sections after that go into various different duties or sort of explains things like the role that the HSC has and so on. Now, we're not going to go through every single section because there are 85 of them. However, we're going to go with the key bits. Now, one thing we'll add to that is obviously the date that we're doing this is, well, we're in September um, as we're recording this, September 2023. And of course, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, things may alter. So it's just worth noting that. The other thing as well is if there was a specific other section that we're not covering that you'd like us to cover, feel free to drop us an email at go on <laughs> health and safety angels at gmail.com. And if there's a particular bit that we, we aren't covering, because we're going to really focus on the general duty section. We'll look at some things to do with enforcement um, and probably the f- provisions to offences section but we're probably not going to cover anything more than that because it's going into very specific detail and so on. But if there is something and you'd like us to, we will, of course, do that for you. The other side of it is this is our interpretation. We are not Oh yes, the courts. No. Um, if you really, yeah, I mean, there are specifically health and safety lawyers, solicitors, et cetera, out there. Uh, we're giving an explanation from a practical application point of view. So as health and safety consultants, this is what we would say. But of course, we would always recommend people to go to their own health and safety consultant, whether in-house or external, to clarify things that affect your own business. Yeah? Yeah, because I think we can give examples, but everything's a little bit different to different businesses and so on. But um, so we're going to start this evening or whenever you're listening, it's evening for us, with um, section two. Perfect place to start, right at the top. Yes. So section two, the title is General Duties of Employers to Their Employees. So your company to you as an employed person. So if we click on General Duties, it then expands So general duties of employers to their employees is the title, but then it goes into subsections. So smaller sections within that main section two that breaks things down. So subsection one says it shall be the duty of every employer to ensure so far as is reasonably practicable, which we'll come back to, the health safety and welfare at work of all his employees the start of that daisy it shall be the duty what does that mean okay so whenever you ever see the word shall in law it means must don't ask me why they don't use the word must but that's what it means so it's something that must be done has to be done So when it says it shall be the duty of every employer, that means every employer has to do what they're then going to talk about. So if you are an employer, that means that you effectively may have as many as, goodness knows, hundreds and thousands of employees or as little as one employee. 
And therefore, if you're an employer, you have to follow what's about to be stipulated. So there's no kind of getting out of this if you are a small business or anything like that. You still have to do what it's about to say. You can't say, um, well, I don't have the knowledge. I, I don't really understand it. So I didn't do it. You you have to find this stuff out. And people say mm-hmm. to me, but it makes life, it makes it really hard. Well, unfortunately, yes. If you choose to run a business and that business then employs people, you have no choice and you have to make that effort. And if it's something that you're not willing to do, um, you don't want to do, then you have to rethink whether you're going to run a business. Yeah. And, I, and we have previously talked about the fact that if you are literally starting from scratch, we did point you to the uh, basics for business section on the HSE website as well as a good place to start. So that's maybe go back to that, um, the podcast, which is to do the, the previous episode, which was to do with guidance and uh, maybe go back to that if you're literally starting from scratch. Right. But so it says it shall, it shall be the duty of every employer to ensure and then it talks about the health, safety and welfare at work of his employees. So just starting back with health. Health is, is, is about being free from illness. It's about being physically fit and well. It's about being mentally fit and well. And so that your workplace cannot affect that health so obviously you may already come into work with a health condition but your workplace cannot make that worse or you know exasperate that or you know make it any worse than it already is and so we're talking with health we're talking about anything that could be short-term health so something that makes you cough or something that gives you sickness and diarrhea all the way up to something that causes a long-term health condition such as cancer or um, stress for example yeah so it's anything that's to do with your uh, usually it's connected with something which has the ability to sort of potentially cause that range of health effects something short term as well as something long term both uh, physically and psychologically as well so mentally as well Um, So this is a really broad term, that health. So, for example, if you have, um, I don't know, maybe you've got, um, maybe you're going through the menopause, for example, your work environment cannot exasperate those health conditions that you already have as a result of that. Okay, they have to ensure that the working environment doesn't make it any worse for you. Maybe you're pregnant for example and again you can't affect the health of that person or the unborn child as well Um, if you're working in an environment with a vibrating piece of equipment like a jackhammer or something the vibration can't affect your health leading to ill health conditions you can't go into work and start breathing in dust that ends up giving you cancers and things So it's quite broad ranging. You have every right to go home the same way. So we're just putting that moral reason into law to force people that need forcing. And this is where, of course, the force of the law comes in, in terms of prosecution and the other things we talked about, financial implications and so on. 
And so rather than just saying, well, it's not right, this is, it's against the law. This is a crime if you don't protect people in that way. The next word is safety. So safety is a little easier because safety is to do with being uh, protected from more obvious physical hazards. So this is things like your trip hazards, um, not falling off a ladder. So it's more to do with physical injury, that sort of thing. So it's a little easier to interpret that. And which is why potentially we focused very heavily on that and not health, because it's it's been easier to do that. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point, because I think that a lot of businesses really have over the years, especially since that the, the legislation came out. I think a lot of businesses have focused on safety because safety is much, is much easier to manage. Usually it's something quite visual. You can see the hazard. Health is often invisible. So dust you can't see, stress that you can't see, you know, that sort of thing. So therefore, it makes it a little bit harder to manage. And obvious. So we're we're talking about a range of people, aren't we, that have to comply because you can anyone can start up a business and employ people. And if you have to comply with this and you're a bit confused, then you're going to go with the stuff that's obvious yes, and not necessarily understand. So, you know, I, I meet people, they don't know that certain dusts can cause lung cancer um, and that certain levels of noise over a period of time can cause you hearing damage. They just don't know because they haven't, they haven't learned that. Whereas I think safety is something that you, know, you get taught safety at school, road safety. Yeah. I think stranger danger. I think that um, safety is more, and we often don't use this term, but it's a little bit more something that it would be considered perhaps common sense in the fact that from a very young age, you would teach a child about things like something being hot, um, that a car could hit you and hurt you. Um, a, a child from a very young age will fall over and bang their head. So these are things that our perception of those risks is built at a very, very young age. So I think they're more obvious in that sense as well, because in a lot of cases, we've experienced those, you know, you've fallen over, you've had, you know, I don't know, an accident, and, and therefore, you know, that physical pain that comes from that so I think it's a little easier that side of it um, plus we see things like you say like things like road safety campaigns and we're taught like the green cross code and those sorts of things so I, I think it's a little bit more the education around that I think is perhaps a little bit more out there yeah and we can see in things like the number of deaths since the legislation came out you know those sorts of numbers have gone down because as we've become better at managing those safety hazards, that's, you know, the, the statistics show that. However, what we've sadly seen is a sharp increase in the number of hazards that result in health conditions that aren't being adequately managed. Right. We've definitely got an increasing number of health conditions and actually starting to recognise. So, not only will stress have been a factor in workplaces for a long time and it's gone unrecognized as society is getting busier more pressurized we want more and more and more and more we're actually putting people's health in a far at far greater risk mm. because of the way we live these days and our expectations somebody today uh, delivering an IOSH and we were laughing about how you could be out at work let's say out doing a job and you're 
company would have to wait until you got back to call you and say something. Whereas now you can be, someone can ring you, you don't answer. So they ring you again and then ring you again. Like it's their God given right to talk to you. Mm. And that's how the world's changed, isn't it? We're, we're increasing the, the levels of pressure that we're under and therefore it's affecting our health, but you don't see it. So you don't take it as seriously. And because we're not seeing it and it's getting more and more pressurized, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And at some point we've got to say, we need to do something about it. Mm. And we're, we're definitely opening up the doors to recognizing it now. But I do think we, we, people need to hear more about what it is and, and the damage that it does. I think also we are, we're kind of, uh, slightly we're almost waiting for science as well to catch up so if you think about some health conditions um, for example exposure to asbestos then the 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 knowledge about the risks to, for, for to, uh, associated with asbestos have been around for a very long time before it was actually banned in the UK and of course it's not banned all around the world despite the fact that we know how hazardous hazardous it actually is but also, if you think about things like smoking, you know, there was times when you may have been prescribed cigarettes. Wow. Can you imagine that now? Can you imagine being prescribed cigarettes now? I do know that people used to go to the doctors and the doctor would be smoking. Well, no, this was this was actually if you had things like chest um, issues, they would sometimes prescribe you cigarettes <gasps> To, they, they believed it expanded your lungs, increasing your lung capacity. How ironic is that? Wonder, what do you reckon roughly time-wise? 50, 60 years more? Probably a little longer than that, yeah. But I just, vape, vaping, now, vaping is another one. We, we don't have enough knowledge. We don't have enough data. Nobody has vaped for 50 years for us to tell, to, to know how harmful it can be. And this is not a comparison. So often people go, yeah, but compared to smoking, it's not about comparison. It's about hazards. And sometimes certain types of hazards, usually health hazards, you have to be exposed for a long period of time in order for the effects to perhaps accumulate and then you to feel those effects. And of course, we see that in lots of different examples with things like dust, as you just were talking about, you know, um, people have been working with harmful dusts for so many years, you know, miners ended up with all sorts of health conditions as a result of being exposed to coal dust. You know, there is, there's a, until the evidence is absolutely black and white, people are reluctant to sort of stand and say this is harmful until there is absolutely that evidence that's provided. But there is one big key difference. And that and and I know you say the same thing hurts you, whether you're at home or work, but I, I'm a big advocate of you can do whatever you want in your personal lives if you if you want to choose to put yourself at risk, that you do have that choice. The difference here is this law is in place so that your employer cannot put you at risk. Oh, yeah. So you have a choice at home to do what you want. Your employer cannot expose you. And that's why this is here, right? We know it's here to prevent harm so that you know that you can go to work and be free from any ill health or, or harm. Um, 
And that's why we need to make sure everyone understands it so that they're empowered in the workplace to know what they are entitled to. Because there's a lot of people that don't understand um, how absolutely important this law is for a place of work. They don't, and they don't know they can stand up to it. And that's, that's quite um, an important thing to know. And one of the important, one of the things I think I, I think is really key about this one piece, this section two point one of the Health and Safety at Work Act, is if you look at prosecutions or if you look at enforcement action that's been brought against businesses, so where they have actually been um, visited by the HSE and found to not be doing what they should be doing, this one sentence that Lindsay read earlier, um, that one sentence is what more organisations are prosecuted under than any other piece of legislation. And this is why this one sentence is so key. So if we sound like we're harping on about this, this is because this is the absolute backbone of health and safety. So if you can understand all these different ideas about health, what safety means, and we're going to talk about welfare as well in just a moment, if you can understand that, you can see how far reaching this law can actually go. So when I, you know, you talk about mental health, um, I mentioned before about menopause, we're talking about, you know, lung disease, all sorts of different things. It can be that far reaching. Um, so I just think it's that's why we're kind of impressing the importance of this one little sentence upon everybody. And we know that a lot of prosecutions are under this section because it's actually fairly easy to prosecute under this because it's actually very open isn't it yeah because if a company for example if you have maybe you're a hairdresser okay and um you have a member of staff who has got is getting really sore cracked hands um you know and it's, it's developed been to doctor the doctor said it's dermatitis yeah contact dermatitis occupational dermatitis from the the bleaches the, the fact that you've got your hands in water all the time etc etc that you've now got a health condition that you didn't have unless you were working in a hairdresser in that hairdresser and therefore it falls as a breach of that one little bit that one little sentence although the law is fair isn't it and we'll come back to what makes it fair so it's not saying you have a duty to ensure that health safety and welfare at work no matter what it's your fault there is there is something that that brings that balance in. Yeah, there's there's the caveat, as it were, the kind of the the the, the gap, the chink in the armor, in the sense that it it does have that term so far as is reasonably practicable. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But before we do, let's talk about welfare. So what does welfare yep. mean to you, Lindsay? Do you know the first thing that comes to my mind? Mm -hmm. Toilets. The state of some of the toilets that you see, and it just shocks me that people still think that it is okay to allow your staff to come into your workplace, make you money, and that's the bathroom that they get given. And have a skanky toilet. Yeah, it's just, mm. it's such basic stuff. So for me, that's always the first thing that I think about mm. is is the, the sanitary conveniences. Um, <laughs> and there's laws in place that say, <laughs> laws in place that say you have to provide certain cubicle sizes certain privacy 
Um, they even get told you have to provide toilet paper, which amazes me that people would need to be told that. But we know they do because of the state that's out there. Um, but obviously, you know, we'll look into that in more detail when we get to that specific regulation. But toilets for me. What about you? And I think I think the toilet thing is a really good, uh, really good point, because basically what we're talking about with welfare is sustaining human life sustaining human comfort so the basic things that human beings need so at some point during the day you're going to need to have a break you're going to have somewhere where you can sit down and have a drink you're going to need somewhere if you're working in a cold place somewhere you can come and get warm and maybe make a cup of tea if you're working in a hot place somewhere you can get out the sun or out of the heat and have a nice cold drink you know if you've got if you've got to put your safety boots on somewhere where you can sit down and put your boots on if you have, um, I don't know, if you if you have to wear overalls somewhere you can get changed into your overalls without everybody staring at you, um, somewhere you can store your home clothes if you're, uh, you know, you're taking those items off. So the, these are basic facilities that are required just to ensure that you've got the little bits and pieces in place that are needed. And welfare, of course, would would also incorporate things to do with your well-being so things like first aid as well um so maintaining that side of it by you know if you are harmed giving you a plaster giving you someone who knows how to look after you if you're feeling sick or you're unwell in some description as well so it is absolutely massive when you when you break it down Uh, but we're going to look into welfare in a bit more details when we come to some regulations that cover welfare mm-hmm. in more detail. So we can come back to that one. So if we know your employer has an absolute duty to ensure your health, safety and welfare at work, what is this caveat that one speaks about? The thing that makes it, <laughs> honestly, I'm getting good at this, aren't I? Um, that makes it fair. Because if you start a business and you're told you have to do everything you possibly can no matter what to keep people safe a lot of businesses wouldn't survive we've got our our legal terminology that that really sits at the heart of making health and safety fair when it comes to employing people which is our so far as is reasonably practicable so what's your take on that so for me where we see that little kind of gap um that, that sort of well you know it's it's looking at um uh whatever we do we do it so far as is reasonably practicable for me it is cost versus benefit and what i mean by that is the cost in terms of not just money because there are costs other than money there are general sacrifice costs there's trouble there's effort there's time um there's there's maintenance associated costs there's the effort of putting this control measure in place and making things safer versus how much it's actually going to keep people safe. And and when we see the term so far as is reasonably practicable, it is the consideration of these two. It's the weighing a risk against that trouble, time and money needed to actually control that risk. And effectively, if the 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 the, the trouble, the time, the effort is less than the benefit that is what's considered reasonably practicable so uh, i've got a supermarket 
And in my supermarket, we sell milk. And those lovely customers that we need to ensure our business runs and is profitable, they love to come in, go to the milk aisle and drop milk on the floor. And we get this massive spillage and people could slip. So do you think it's reasonably practicable for me to employ a uh, security guard that works 24-7 and stands at the milk aisle with their binoculars watching and waiting to see if we have a spillage of milk? Do you think that's reasonable? Do you think that's fair? No, because if it was, I'd probably see other supermarkets doing it. Right. So... Then I talk about, well, what is reasonably practicable? If I know I need to, to keep a check to make sure there's no milk spilt on the floor, then what would be reasonable? And I'm talking about, uh, I'm not going to say the, I'll say it, big Tesco, because everyone knows what a big Tesco is, right? Uh, big Tesco runs 24-7, lots and lots of staff. So what I think is reasonable is I'm going to train up my staff so they know how to carry out a regular inspection. Mm-hmm. And... I'm going to make sure that I've got documentation so that they can record down that they've carried out the inspection. I'm going to make sure they're competent to do it. So I'm going to train them to make sure they know what they're looking for. And they're going to carry out those regular checks so that if they do see a spillage, that they can put our system in place to guard the spillage and clean it up straight away. And I think that's the thing, isn't it, really? That's uh, in, in a supermarket, you will have staff wandering around all the time, inadvertently checking for things. Has something fallen off the shelf? Has somebody left, uh, you know, something they could trip over? Has, you know, somebody's dog walked in and had a whittle on the floor or whatever, you know, and that's what the staff walk around and, and look for. And then they've got you know, some absorbent materials. They've got one of those yellow wet floor signs. They've got all the the kit handy so they can deal with it as quickly as possible. And that is reasonably practicable. Yeah, that's reasonable for someone to implement that. I mean, if you're you're not big Tesco uh, and you're a much smaller firm, then maybe you would say you'd have less recorded inspections, potentially, depending on the volume of people coming into your store. But it's about what's reasonable for that business. You can't say oh, well, I've got a competitor and they don't do that. How do you know exactly how many people they've got? How much? How do you know how much they turn over? It's going to be very, very specific to an individual business. Yeah, and I think on the flip side, if you did have a small like little corner shop, maybe it was just one person worked there or whatever, you know, it, it wouldn't be feasible for them to be coming out all the time and filling in paperwork however probably at the start of the day they're just going to check everything's as it should be and if a customer comes up and says by the way I've just dropped some milk on the floor they've got some blue paper towel which they'll go and clean it up with so it's about there's still there is still a measure by which to control the risk but it's appropriate depending on the size of the business the nature of the business the number of people that could be harmed by the hazard and, and, and so on And that's the thing about you saying about a big supermarket, of course. We're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of people versus like the little corner shop that might only have 20 customers a day. It's the same similar nature of business, but there is differences in the two environments. And you can't expect them to both do the same thing because what's right for the corner shop would not be right for Tesco's or other supermarkets. Right. and and what what the larger supermarket would do would put the small business out of business. And that's not what we're trying to do here. Right. That's why it's fair. 
Yeah, it's practical solutions to problems. We identify that there's something that could harm someone in whatever way, like we've talked about, health-wise, safety-wise, welfare-wise. And we look at things that are reasonable, things that we can afford, things that actually will make a difference to keep people safe. And those are the control measures. And the thing about the previous discussions we had on on other um, episodes about things like guidance that's what the guidance is there for. That's what the HSE website is there for. You type in that you're a corner shop on their on their website. There's a guide for the shop. There's a guide for the kitchen. There's a guide for the garage. There's a guide because that's that's the whole point of that information is to support that and to make it as simple as possible. So if you're still scratching your head, there's that resource out there to go and to, to access and to go and learn and to you know take on board that information. And of course. The one thing we will say is that no matter what the size of the business is, if there's something that could cause harm to people, you have to do something. Yeah, you can't bury it. Even if it's a, yeah, even if it's a sign saying trip hazard, you have to do something. You can't ignore it because that's what leads to people dying and injured and ill and all the rest of it. Right. So we know that the HSE is there to help. Uh, uh, and give mm. advice and guidance and there's some stuff that you have to do and things that um, that you should be doing but also people are here to learn from us so Daisy what is your example of how we understand reasonably practicable well my the example I use is actually probably not that dissimilar to yours because actually uh, explaining it is is kind of you know it's a concept so it's just a different example but my i use one based on noise okay so i say that for example you have somebody working in a room that has a very very noisy piece of equipment so noisy that you end up ears ringing you know headache at the end of the day jobby and you've got one person working in that and you know that this person is you know is struggling with this so you look at actually replacing the piece of equipment with a less noisy version and it's going to cost you £50,000. And you're like, for one person, wow, that's an awful lot of money. And instead you go, do you know what? For that one person, we're going to get them some really decent ear defenders and we're going to check their hearing regularly to make sure that the ear defenders are working. Yeah. You monitor that. And if that seems to be working correctly and you're happy with that, the person's happy, then that's the control measure you're going to do. However, if you imagine the same scenario, but rather than one person in that environment, we now have 200 people. Actually replacing that piece of equipment suddenly seems much more realistic. Because suddenly if I've got 200 people in that noisy environment, I've got 200 sets of ear defenders, plus I have to monitor that everybody's wearing it, which obviously gets more difficult the more people there are. And I've got 200 hearing tests I've got to do probably annually. And suddenly, actually, the cost of that versus the cost of replacing the equipment suddenly seems more acceptable. Right. And the great thing about and the great thing about replacing the equipment is that if once I replace it, and it's quieter, I don't have to worry about any ear defenders. I don't have to worry about any health checks. The environment will be nicer. And if that environment, if we, if we get more staff in or we get visitors, we don't have to worry about them either because that equipment is already nice and quiet now. And that's how I look at it. I love that. I do. I like that. Thank you. It's it's really interesting, isn't it, to hear other people's takes on it because 
health and safety is so big and there's so many examples and some examples work really well for some mm. and not for others. So actually to be able to hear it in a variety of different ways is actually really good. I really like that a lot. Thank you. I will fight. I will carry on and, and keep doing it for another day then, shall I, this health and safety stuff? Yes. Yeah. I I, I give you my, uh, my tick of approval. I think you're pretty good. Your angel seal of approval. I will, I will, I will shine my halo up for another day. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode, doesn't it? Really, it does. So we have. So what we've gone through is section two of the Health and Safety at Work Act. Uh, gone into section two, which is general duties of employers to their employees, and we've started with subsection one, which is it shall be the duty of every employer to ensure, so far as is reasonably practicable the health, safety and welfare at work of all his employees. And what I'm really hoping is that when we read that out at the beginning and you thought, oh my God, what does that even mean? That now we've read it out again after what we've discussed, that actually you go, oh, I get it. And it actually starts to make a little bit more sense. Yes, exactly. That's the purpose behind it. Um, so yeah, so so next time we're going to move on to section 2.2 and just sort of slowly work our way through. Um, this episode a little bit longer again, because this is such a, a key section, that one, uh, 2.1. So it's really important that we really understand what the, all those terms mean. And, and things like the term shall, we'll see that repeated again. So we'll know what that means for next time. We'll see the term so far as is reasonably practicable repeated again. So we'll know for next time as well. So um, yeah, we'll be able to plow on next episode in straight into 2.2. Lovely. Well, it's been lovely having a chat, Daisy. Thank you so much. Yeah, as always. And um, I will see you in two weeks on our next episode. Indeed. Well, everybody take care and keep safe. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.